hop aboard the chill wagon. It's just basketball. Talking about Joe Ingles' latest article that was written by Chris Kimrani in The Athletic right here on Round Ball Roundup on utahjazz.com. I'm J.P. Chunga. C.K. joins the show to give background on how he came up with that story and many of his other jazz stories. Had an awesome feature on Quinn Snyder back when he was working for the Salt Lake Tribune. He's been a staple in the Utah market. One of the best feature writers in the country. So we picked his brain on that. But first, podcast brought to you by Bailey's Moving and Storage. We move with you every step of the way, near or far, big or small. Bailey's Moving and Storage. So I'm glad we're podcasting after the Kings' most points in franchise history as opposed to those two Minnesota Timberwolves losses, if only because there's a cause and a need to enjoy the chill wagon. Just watch the broadcast on Wednesday, and it was getting built up. That that was a must-win for the Jazz. And I get it. It's draft season. We're using cliches. We're talking about smoke screens. It's the take economy. We have to have something new, different to say. Hyperbole wins. But if you're saying Wednesday against the Kings was a must-win game, then we have to change the language. Because what must-win means is that you win or it's over. The season ends. You know, it's a must-win game seven. Game seven's a must-win for both teams. Game 59 of 72 is not a must-win. This team's playoff future is secured. They're going to be a one or two seed. They clinch the playoffs. And they're not going to be playing the Wizards or the Timberwolves when it comes to the postseason. It's fine that way. But seriously, to call Wednesday a must-win is a dramatic overreaction of what was happening. I understand the concern, but let's also... Remember what words mean. And what Wednesday was, was just a moment for the group without Donovan to find rhythm, to find flow, to figure out what it looks like when the offensive leader isn't on the floor. And they did it to the tune of 154 points, eight players in double digits. It's just a minor rant on how I felt once I saw people crying for a must-win situation against the Sacramento Kings. And I'm not, I'm not going to be Team Flack that says two losses to the Timberwolves. Actually, those are wins, and they are moral victories. No, but we can also have a nuanced reaction and a balanced realization that the world isn't over with a loss. It happens. This is basketball. So many games. Do you judge teams in baseball through a snapshot of a three-game series? Are you judging movies by just one scene? No, this is a bad point for them in the way that they played, but there are also factors that include Donovan not being available, Mike Conley not being available. Mike wasn't even there on Wednesday night, and they still played that well offensively. Understand where we are in the point of the season. Fatigue road trips, it all adding up. Friday night, there is a zero chance that they're going to come out without the physicality at the start of the game. And I get it. 
may want to look at it and see it as a measuring stick game or some other platitude along those lines. But without Donovan, there are no measuring stick games with this team right now. The full team includes their best offensive player. And you're going to see him once you get to the playoffs. Phoenix has a challenging schedule the rest of the way. And I'm sure you're rooting against the Suns in every single game that they play. But the Jazz, they can get wins even without Donovan to finish up the season. They've got OKC. They have Sacramento. They got a couple games against the Spurs next week. It lines up for them to have a much easier finish as it has the entire year. Phoenix still has to play L.A. when they'll be buoyed by Anthony Davis and probably LeBron, and they play the Knicks. They still have playoff opponents to take on. Friday, what you should be looking at is how does Utah have the answer or are they showing their game plan that can improve on those missteps in the first couple meetings? CP operating the mid-range. Him going at Gobert, trying to get him in pick and roll, using Aiton as a screener, and taking Gobert on 1v1. What are the Jazz going to do? Phoenix used it to success, and Washington used it to success. How do they play? And see what that team has to offer. This is their moment. This is when they're getting vetted as a contender in the top echelon of the West. This is it. So a lot of eyes will be on Friday, but leave the hot takes at the door. Just join me. Join me on the chill wagon. We're all having a good time. We're realizing the big proof for this team's coming in the playoffs, who they're going to play in the first round. They'll be favored heavily, and let's see where the standings mid-tier, 4-5, 3 matchups all end up after the play-in tournament. Loads of room on the chill wagon. You don't have to be as wound up tight when you're on the chill wagon. It's all good. Plenty of room. Save your seat. As always, let others know that you're listening to the podcast. Five stars, nice reviews, that's all I ask of you. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher. Chris Kimrani, The Athletic. One of the best storytellers in the country. He's done features on Poppy Lebetard, on Spencer Hall of Every Day Should Be Saturday, and many more. CK talked to Joe Ingalls for an entire hour and produced a piece that even if you follow Joe, know a lot about Joe, you learn something new about him and what he's doing out in the community, how much he cares about his family, about Jacob and Milla, having worked on his podcasts. These are things that I didn't even know that you learn in CK's piece. Take a look at it on The Athletic. Please enjoy a conversation with Chris Camrani on Round Ball Roundup. When it comes time to move, it's always a hassle. Loading everything in the truck, hoping the priceless antique from your mother doesn't break, and trying to juggle the kids and dog in the middle of it all is enough to drive anyone crazy. But it doesn't have to be that way. The friendly, background-checked movers at Bailey's Moving and Storage have the expertise to move your family across town or even around the world. So when it's time to move, think Bailey's Moving and Storage. Call today at 801-218-2640 or check them out online at baileysallied.com. 
just start off by saying that I don't think you can put me in the category of a beat writer because that would be a disservice to people who work really hard on sports beats. And that's not to say that I think I'm above that. Um, I'm just not that good of it, at that job. Like my my skill set is not um, tailored to you know watching a lot of games and understanding the actual intricacies of um, the nuts and bolts of sports. I can, I'm capable, um, but I think my uh, desire to tell, um, would you categorize them as weird, JP? Like, are, are we, is that accurate in that like, or is that like, is there a negative connotation to that? There's not a negative connotation to weird. Poppy yeah. Lebetard is weird. He is a strange force on television. That's what you're, and these are the stories that you're telling. Spencer Hall, weird in in yeah. the internet space of yeah. sports media. These are weird stories. Yeah, yeah um, I guess I just look at it like what is uh, intriguing to me in the sports sphere, and um, I would assume that there are other people around the world that think uh, similarly, and. Um, yeah, so I would describe my job as a very fortunate, privileged person who lives a life of luxury in my cave, uh, getting to bother the likes of Bill Walton and Spencer Hall and Poppy Levitard, uh, but also, um, you know, get serious when, you know, it needs to be uh, serious. And uh, you mentioned Joe and, and, you know, talking to Joe for about an hour last week about um professional athletes putting their guard down and feeling like they can expose their actual feelings of what um, being a, a human being is like. Those are important things, I think, for uh, fans, readers, whomever, to understand that um, these people are more than the millionaires that we see on TV, and we can't necessarily always put them in that box because that's unfair to them. How do you approach somebody like Joe who fans seemingly know a lot. I think I know a lot just from having worked on the podcast with yeah. him uh, a while back. How do you approach that in trying to say something new with things that people already know? Um, I, I think first and foremost, you have to go back and read what's already been written um, and try to be sure not to repeat that. And you take, um, you know, previous reporting, you take um, tidbits of what Joe has said in interviews over the years, and you use that to ask questions differently. Um, I think this might shock some people, but I think a lot of sports journalists these days don't necessarily go into interviews really that prepared, like we were taught, you know, at the college paper or whatever. Um, and I think for me, the only way I'll make the interview worth it is if I will spend 30 minutes or so writing out as many questions as I have in my mind to ask somebody like Joe and to have it formulaic in that uh, you're not coming out of the gates like um, too hot, if that makes sense. Like there, there were questions interspersed in our interview where I wanted to know just what the nuts and bolts of Joe's uh, life is like at home when the kids come storming through the front door at 5 a.m. Um, and, you know, once Joe gets, you know, pretty emotional or serious, then I want to learn, like, who taught Joe Ingalls how to talk on the floor. 
because I think people around the NBA and specifically jazz fans know him as one of the guys who, how do I explain it? Like, he's not like a, but he um, just likes to poke and prod people. And I think especially for- Sure. And I think for a, a fan base like the Jazz, that goes a long way um, for them because they want to have somebody represent um, who they are. Um, and, and as you, you mentioned ad nauseum, there isn't somebody more uh, befitting of the Jazz DNA than Joe Ingles because he is a guy that has been, um, you know, short sailed his entire career and basically had to work his way up the ladder and now you're looking him at 33 he turns 34 later this year he's having a historic year um, shooting the basketball on a team that is historically good at shooting the basketball and i think this links to even the story that you did when you were back at the tribune with quinn him being overlooked and you taking a slice of the Quinn pie who is more guarded than Joe. Yeah. Like th- yeah. these are two opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to jazz personalities and what they want to give you, at least normally to the media. And you still, when I went back yesterday and just reread your Quinn profile, these memories flood back of this, this intense person and how Joe's telling him you, you need to sleep more. you're you're starting to concern us you're starting to concern us because you're not sleeping enough yeah those two stories are pretty emblematic of of where the jazz are and where the slow build has been to where they're at right now don't you think absolutely and um i i don't think it should be lost on anybody that two people like Quinn and Joe, who are very similar in a lot of ways, but are polar opposite in a lot of ways too, are among the closest people on the team because, um, you know, I think somebody like Quinn appreciates somebody like Joe, um, you know, not mincing words and vice versa. I think um, what you've seen from Quinn Snyder's like instilled culture in the jazz is like, there's no BS. There's not a lot of time for hand-holding or coddling. And maybe there was early on. I mean, you'll know this because you understand the internet. The one thing I was trying to find more than anything and I couldn't find was when our friend Tyler Gibbons used to work at ABC4, they, he used to go shoot jazz games and he would record those old vines in really high definition HD. And there's an old vine of like Rudy's second year when he like had a blown assignment and Tyler has this vine of Quinn on the sideline, like stomping his foot in Rudy's direction and like got like that mad dad face and like Rudy like flinches. And it's like, it's so interesting to see like where Quinn as a coach was in 2015, 16 to where he is now. And I think that's just a natural progression, a natural evolution of a core being you know, stuck together for a long time, a coaching staff, a front office having a, a long-term vision of what they want this team and roster to look like. Uh, but specifically to Quinn, um, I, I think at the end of the day, you just have to be real with people and um, present to them and to those around them, like what you are interested in learning and wanting to glean. 
uh, the 20, I think it was 2018 or 19 profile at the trip. Um, that was like, you get 15 minutes with Quinn at the ZBBC, which is rare. So I treasured that, but like writing stories like that, you just got to go, um, all around the world. And like, I mean, I was sending WhatsApp messages to Nenad Kristic in Serbia, like Nets legend. Yeah. And it's like, there is something to be learned about, I mean, everybody talks about Quinn's, you know, odd path in the NBA and like how he left an assistant coaching job in LA to go to Seska for a year. And like, I wanted to know from a guy like Nenad, like, how is this young American basketball coach adjusting to life in the Russian professional league? And like talking about like seven hour plane rides one way to, to like trips, like basketball road trips across the country. Like these are things that I think people don't unnecessarily know about, um, but they would want to know about it once you find that out and present them to that, if that, if that makes sense. Even just the attention to detail with a meeting. I remember Jay Billis telling a story about how he was sitting in on a meeting and they ran through it. And at one point, Quinn says, we got to make this 18, eight minutes, 15 seconds, no more, no less. And so they cut something, they cut, cut parts of the meeting. And then Jay's sitting in on the actual meeting that happens. He times it and they end exactly on 8.15. Wow. And, and that's the attention of detail where he's not, he's not spending superfluous time talking someone up. It's just down mm -hmm. to business. Let's get this done move on and now we're on to the next thing because time is valuable and he's trying to get every single ounce out of the day that yeah. he can possible well i i think about this often too like i don't think you can find a coach for this era of basketball more tailored to the game today than quinn snyder like the amount of um detail needed from everything and that's not to say like some of the hall of fame coaches from the eighties and nineties and the two thousands. Like, I'm not saying that those folks did not uh, appreciate the finest of details, but with the way the game has evolved and the way that um, the power structure of certain positions on the floor have evolved, you need a coach to understand how to maximize the talent and the space of the floor. And we've seen what the jazz have been able to do this last, I mean, Going back to that Rocket series a couple of years ago, that team was comprised of a lot of, you know, dogged defensive first players, but they couldn't hit shots from the outside. They just couldn't. And we saw that in those back-to-back -back series losses against the Rockets those two years. And now you fast forward, uh, you know, some guys move on, some guys develop, some guys uh, figure out, um, you know, how to hit their shooting stroke. And now all of a sudden you have a team that is going to make a historic amount of three pointers in the NBA. Whereas just a couple of years ago, when push came to shove, they couldn't hit threes in order to, you know, keep them in games against the likes of James Harden and Chris Paul. So I think that's a very long winded way of saying um, this era of basketball um, is what I think Quinn Snyder was tailored for. And they're flourishing right now. Do you have a thought on when you get helicoptered in to a different sport? What do you see from the differences with the regular everyday covering college sports and doing that part of the job? Not that you're, as you said, a beat writer, but yeah. then jumping into 
a different sport in the same market, but very sure. different in the way that they approach media. Well, th they're very similar and they're very different at the same time. Um, I think number one, and this might be inside baseball for your listeners, and maybe that's what people like, um, it always starts with a decent story idea and it always comes with a pitch. And um, generally you will go to the public relations staff at any professional or collegiate um, you know, program here in the state. And you say, this is a story idea that I have. Uh, this is something that I would like to work on. Is it possible to, to get um, so-and-so? And usually it's more of a high profile personality. Can I get them away from the fray? Can I get them away from the noise? Can I get them to feel relaxed and focused and comfortable enough to talk about um, things that I, and I, this goes back to our beat thing, like things that maybe they don't want to talk about in front of a lot of people, as opposed to maybe just one or two and preferably one, obviously. Uh, it's, it's harder at the collegiate level because things are so much more guarded. Um, and I understand that it's a bummer, um, but that's the way things are. Um, bulletin board material is an actual thing in, in collegiate sports where I feel like it's pretty rare especially in professional sports now, because so many of these, we just don't see a lot of hate, man. Like, you know, it's not, there's also not too much, too much content coming at them. At That's all true. Times. That's true. Yeah. I mean, They're it's inundated. A, yeah. It's a 24 hour news cycle. Things are forgotten, but like the way I think about it, it's like there, there is no longer like, you know, a uh, brawls at the garden. Like there, there aren't people who general, I mean, maybe there are, and you know, Joe if actually. Jeff Van, if Jeff Van Gundy <laughs> had a job right now, he would be hanging off of, I don't know, somebody, somebody's leg. DeAndre Ayton's leg. Yeah, 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 yeah. But like, even Joe and I talked about that when we spoke last week, he was like, when I asked him about the way he likes to get under people's skin, he was like, it's 90% of it's fun. It's yeah. very rare now that you come across somebody that you really have a strong disdain for. Whereas when we were growing up, it was kind of the polar opposite. Anyway, I'm off on a tangent. Uh, but um, I, at the end of the day, it just comes down to an idea. And you want to hope that the people who are willing to grant you uh, potential access trust you enough that you will um, do the story justice. And um, yeah, in the last year, it's been a lot. There have been some really fun, enlightening stories. There, there have been some very uh, difficult uh, wide ranging investigative stories that I've had to help work on that have affected this market. Um, and it's all different, but that's good. And it's good for me. And that going back to our starting premise, it's, I would describe my job as somebody, um, who gets to do a lot of different things. And that's a luxury. How do you get Joe to trust you? Um, look like Ricky Rubio. That's the, dis that's the disarming, that's the disarming, uh, first, uh, we, we, uh, we bonded over, uh, within the jazz organization, there are, um, very many inside, uh, inside jokes regarding, uh, folks in this market who look like Ricky Rubio, but are in fact, not Ricky Rubio. And it's not just me. Um, and I will say Ricky Rubio, six foot four, I'm about six inches smaller than that, but people still manage to confuse us. Um, no, I mean, I think a lot of it goes to um, having people within the organization s 
tell athletes or tell coaches or tell people um, in the front office, whomever say, this is somebody that you can trust and somebody that you can open up to. Uh, but it really goes back to, I think, being prepared for an interview. And I know that seems like super duper. I mean, I know that sounds kind of repetitive, but I think to your point about being inundated with everything, I think sports journalists are too inundated themselves to be properly prepared for interviews. And that's not to say like you have to go into every Zoom saying like, I, I have four or five questions that I got to get to uh, George Niang on a, on a shoot around. That, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that if you're going to take a big enough swing, you have to come prepared and you can't stumble, you can't look unprepared because these are people who, who deal with media on a daily basis, more than pretty much any other professional sports league in the world. The NBA is exceptional from that standpoint, maybe not to the players and coaches, but from a media perspective, and in a pre-COVID time, it is absurd. I mean, there are three to four times a day that some of these folks are having to talk. You don't deal, you don't, you don't have to see that in any other sports league in the world. And it's global. We have and it's global. Uh, a media member from Greece that sits in on media sessions all the time. Yeah. You know, they're from all over the place. And I think from our end, just sometimes as media people, you get sucked into the Google. And you're like, I have to, I have to ask them the thing that I just Googled and saw on their Wikipedia page because I, I just saw it. It interested me. Yeah. But it doesn't fit into the conversation. You're, you're trying to have when you get these precious moments with somebody. When you talk to a Dennis Lindsay or Justin Zanuck, you have to find a way to get something unique from them. And by just Googling and seeing on the Wikipedia page that one day that they did this with this person might not get the freshest story that you could ever get from them by just doing that. No, and that's funny you say that because um, last year, like a month before things shut down, I got to go to a game and sit down with uh, Dennis and Jay-Z for that Jordan Clarkson story I wrote. And I was, the angle was like the Jazz haven't had a legit sixth man in forever. I mean, I guess, would we say that Matt Harpering was probably the last one, maybe Corver, the first go around, maybe that yeah. was like, those were the two that come to mind, but like not what Jordan has been able to do for this team. And like when I, you know, go and sit in their office at the Viv, like I know I have five to seven to 10 minutes tops. I'm not going to go in there and stumble. I'm not going to go in there and, and take too long to ask questions. I'm going in to figure out like, hey, you just pulled another midseason trade and you dealt away somebody that a lot of the fans were excited about, but you're taking this risk to take on potentially a, a very important impact player. Does the history of the lack of having a sixth man, does that um, impact a, a, per, a potential deal like this? Are, to your point about Google, like you have to learn about the subject that you're working on and uh, the uh, the infrastructure in which you're writing about, because I think having historical context helps too. I think it would be harder for me to say, to you know, get on a Zoom with the Memphis Grizzlies and ask Taylor Jenkins about um, you know Brandon Clark's offensive rebounding rating. You know what I mean? I, th I think at the end of the day, uh, 
just uh, having inherent knowledge of, of the market and some teams helps, which is why you see me get weird with people and not necessarily like teams, you know, like I can get weird with Poppy. I can get weird with Bill. I mean, EDSBS is a maverick in of its own. Individuals are easy, whereas, you know, a, a conglomerate is a lot more uh, intimidating for me. When's the JC deep dive that you're going to do? When are you going to give the people that? I think one, I mean, there are a bunch of benefits working at a place like The Athletic, but there are also uh, pitfalls in that um, you work with a lot of talented people who are frankly better than you. And um, recently, like right before Jordan got traded to the Jazz, um, one of my colleagues at the Cleveland Vertical did an amazing story about breaking down every single tattoo that Jordan has and what it means. Because as we saw when Jordan came into the league, no tattoos, nothing yeah. visible. And, um, and his family doesn't either. Exactly. But like, it was really cool to like, go to see somebody else go in depth on a story idea that you have. It sucks, but it's like, eh, that person did it way better than I could have anyways. Um, but I, I mean, like, I will say I'm not going to do I mean, the story that, um, oh my gosh, this is Bill and Goon's guy, Scott, Scott Cassiola did on the effect of, of Jordan Clarkson's fame in, in the Philippines because Jordan um, is yeah. a, you know, half Philippine descent. That was a banger story. Like that was a story where I was like, man, I'm mad I didn't do that because it was so good. And it makes sense because the Philippines is like a groundswell basketball country. Like basketball is everything there. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll have to come up with uh, a different angle on JC, but there have been some recent really good stories um, and I wouldn't even throw mine in there. Although I will say the anecdote of him going to downtown San Antonio on the Riverwalk and, and remembering people having the brooms out when the Spurs swept uh, an NBA finals was really cool. And to me, like, you know, you know, anecdotes that, that carry weight, that help tell a story, that's everything. And um, that is by far one of my favorites that I've really ever got because you think about a kid who grew up in a uh, kind of a similar market to the jazz, um, you know, really the, the big boys in town and to have him remember in detail what it was like to go celebrate, you know, championship. That was, uh, that was pretty cool to hear. And him appreciating Manu and seeing exactly. that career trajectory yep. for himself and not seeing bench as a demotion, yep. but rather yep. an opportunity for him to exhibit his talents on, on a wider scale. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think our guy Spence calls it the white hot, like button or what he says, green light, but he uses another like term, but I mean, he's got the green light. Quinn gave him the green light and we're seeing uh, what he can do. The irony now is that, I think you can argue that two of the the two leading contenders for the sixth band of the year award in the NBA play for the same team, which I don't know if that's ever happened. I feel like that would lead to some good Twitter arguments online for an athletic writer. <laughs> Certain. <laughs> he who shall not be named. 
you can jump in on those. It could be you. Could be I, you. I'm that so I'm, talking about. I'm so afraid, man. I'm so afraid. I've recently learned how to mute threads on Twitter. So like, yeah, yeah sometimes yeah. sometimes people will bring me into old conversations, like based on an old story or something, and I'll say like, I have no idea what these people are talking about, and I just click those three buttons and it goes down and mute thread. Um, the mute button on Twitter is among the most elite established things in the history of technology on social media. Favorite off ball <laughs> weird story that you've written over the over the off season for Ooh. Utah football and even during the pandemic go, dating you. back to that at EDSBS. Um Do you have a favorite? Can you pick one are they your children? Um the only one that I will say that I that I on I the, the story that I'm most proud of and I don't know if it'll ever be topped was um, my story on the Topaz high school football team. Um, And it's not like one of those that gets a lot of attention. It's not one of those that in this industry sells a lot um, compared to some of the other ones that I've done, but uh, that had the most impact on me because that was a story that my friends and I at the trip talked about potentially pursuing back when we were all, um, you know, little odd duckling reporters. I mean, that was like when Aaron and I were covering preps together. That was when, you know, Kyle was at Utah state or at the U bill was covering the jazz. Like that was a story that we thought like that could potentially be a really interesting story one day. And, um, the pandemic was, obviously awful for so many reasons, but it allowed me to um, basically empty the clip on all of the stories that I've always wanted to do, even at the trip, like um, the other one that comes to mind is I always wanted to do the Real Madrid, uh, Real Salt Lake story, how that week basically basically saved the club from leaving. Um, but the the Topaz story, um, that that's one where I will like unabashedly be like, please subscribe to The Athletic because I think it's so important, um, especially considering what was going on in our country and world at the time. Um, And this happened in our backyard. This happened two and a half hours away from Salt Lake and um, going down there in October and getting a private tour of the Topaz History Museum near Delta, going to that area where these um, American citizens were forced to live for almost three years, uh, it's sobering. And um, I think we lean on the cliche of sports being uh, a mechanism to tell, you know, to talk about history and how it can change people for the, for the better. Uh, this was one of those stories where it was real because these were a bunch of high school kids from Northern California, Central California, Southern California, who were asked to uproot their their lives as they, as they knew it and move to the desert in Utah, and they had nothing to nothing else to do other than uh, learn how to play sports and learn how to play football, and they were actually good. And the parallels between what was going on in the early '40s versus what we endured as a country uh, the last year plus it was uh, sobering. I mean, I. Again, like you mentioned, like, are any of them your babies? I wouldn't say like Topaz is my baby, but like Topaz is the only story that I've ever done where people that I talked to sent me like, 
emails months on end, like wanting to stay in touch. Like I have, I have the obituary of one of the players that I wrote about above my desk because his daughter wanted to send it to me. And he, Joe Kimura died like two months before the story ran. Like those are things to me where it's like, these are people's stories who needed to be told. And that's not to say that, you know, the NBA superstar stories don't need to be told. I'm not saying that, but I think there is something to be said about um, a pursuing something that you've wanted to do for a long time. I mean, that story was seven or eight years in the making and finally uh, being given the allotted amount of time um, in 2020 when time is all we had uh, spending six months on that story and finally getting it to run. And undertold stories. How often are you reading about internment in, in 2020 and even as a product of, of the Utah school system, how, how often are we talking about internment? It's only mentioned. It's a footnote to your history diet growing up here when it was impactful on so many lives. I, I even think to your colleague at the athletic TK, Tim Kawakami, yeah, yeah. who who writes about this, uh, wrote about Stop Asian Hate earlier this year, and how that underrepresented and undertold story isn't in the mainstream as often as, as many others. And this one's just right in our backyard down at Topaz. Yeah. And uh, interesting footnote, Tim Kawakami's mom was born in Topaz. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, it's all, uh, unfortunately, a lot of, uh, a lot of bad things melt together, but out of that, a lot of, um, you know, positive things can bloom. And, um, this last year I, I had, um, I was faced with, um, <laughs> being stressed out about trying to stay on the same path as I was, um, when I got hired at the athletic and trying to write about uh, you know, ranking positional groups of, of, uh, collegiate football players. And that's all good and fine. But, um, I think there came a time, you know, last May where I told my editor, I said, uh, I just gotta, I just gotta freeze freestyle. I have to just go off the cuff. And luckily, um, one, I have an amazing editor who, who was always supportive of me pursuing, um, really random stories. Um, and secondly, it's just having the runway to, to be, to be able to do so. Um, and we haven't even talked about, I just remembered, um, one of the, one of the best was, uh, the jazz band story talking to the old jazz band guys. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> like, like that. And like getting those videos sent to me of like these dudes in like tight white pants and like the tuck in polos playing all these silly, I mean, like it's. I know, I understand that people think that there's kind of an MO of the athletic of like, it's either, you know, uh, you know, a, a revisionist history story from 30 years ago or whatever. But like, those are the stories that, um, one, you're still lucky to be able to do. I mean, that that is an idea that was given to me by Spence last year when we were in the throes of the pandemic. And I was like, we were just on the phone talking and he brought up that there was a live jazz band at the Salt Palace. And I, I had never heard that. And I'm like, what? And he was like, yeah, it was like a bunch of like college kids like playing jazz. And like, then you get these guys on the phone and they're like talking to Charles Barkley and like <laughs> getting getting threatened. And then they meet up at Green Street after. And it's like, part of me is so, um, 
I wouldn't say sad. It's just a bummer that I think there was an era of of professional fandom that was just on a whole nother level that our generation will never get to experience. And and that's okay. But um, hearing some of those stories will, were just out of this world and um, very on par for Utah, I would say in the 80s. Um, but again, like, yeah, big picture, uh, the weird stories of the last year were uh, were a blast. And I, I don't know if it's going to be more difficult to keep it going now that uh, it looks like we're nearing the light of the end of the tunnel, but I will do my best. I'm glad you get to tell them because you blend the serious and the silly uh, in one, which is why I appreciate the Levitard show and why when, when you said uh, in a cryptic text message that you're going to appreciate the story that I run next week, and yeah. it was that poppy... <laughs> piece i'm glad you're doing it because it's it's what i appreciate about sports is that you can have the serious and the cotton candy in the same (laughs) same bowl i and i think i will say this um without sports media um expanding its footprint and allowing more um non-traditional people in the past um I don't know if 20 or 30 years ago, you or I have a job, frankly. I mean, I think we have to understand that, 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 the, that this job was very much one way for a very, very long time. Bruce and Springsteen. That was, the, <laughs> that was the track. Bruce Springsteen. Um, Billy Joel. The, the new one is uh, Jason Isabel is the new, oh, is yeah. the new, is the new sports writer. Yeah. yeah and I, yeah. And I, I can't with that, but like the, like to my point, the reason why I wanted to do Poppy is because my dad is Poppy. Like he was the ultimate troll. Like my dad, uh, you know, immigrated to this country in 1978. And he was a guy that understood that sports were such a joke. He said, why are these guys getting paid millions of dollars? He would actively root against me when I was a child. He would celebrate when when my favorite team lost. And as messed up as that sounds, in retrospect, I think like that probably helped like ground me and understand, help me understand that the world does not revolve around me or my wants or desires. Um, but anyways, like, yeah, I mean, and we're seeing this uh, expansion within the sports media realm more and more. And I think it's a fantastic thing. I mean, I, I was texting with my editor yesterday and um, I, I, I don't watch the, uh, the afternoon shows on ESPN as much as I used to. Um, but one of my favorite writers at ESPN, June Lee, who is one of their senior baseball writers made his uh, around the horn debut. And that was really cool to see. And I was like, okay, like we're, we're, we're going in the right direction. And I think I have um I, you know me not necessarily as an optimistic person, but I do have high hopes for uh, you know where we're going in this industry because I do think there are lots of important storytellers that necessarily haven't had the opportunity to tackle the types of stories that we've needed to do in the last couple of decades, but I think we're headed in the right spot. It looks like around the horn right now with the two boxes, gallery view. Yeah. <laughs> so you can count this as your around the horn appearance. Well, we have, neither of us have been muted yet, so we can take CK, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me.